Good morning, I'm Alicia. Um, and uh, before we get started, if uh, you haven't picked up a scripture journal and you would like to, there's uh, still some scripture journals in the back. Um, and I will be reading the text for this morning. Uh, so you can follow along either in your scripture journal or uh, you can open your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, or follow along on the screens. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And not, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Thank you, Alicia. We're continuing in our series, uh, Illuminated, and this morning's title is Power. So we're going to be talking about power this morning. And uh, when, I was, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I was in kindergarten. Way back then, there was half-day kindergarten. It was crazy. And uh, so we had half-day kindergarten. And uh, I remember my kindergarten teacher, who I won't mention because I haven't asked her permission to share the story. <laughs> uh, but she... Uh, she had this, uh, this quirk about her where if anything went wrong in the room, like if something fell over, she would say, oh, our friendly ghost knocked that over. Now, I don't know if you're a teacher in the room. If you are, don't do that junk. It just, <laughs> it totally wigs kids out. It messes with them in ways that you cannot comprehend on this side of heaven. Because I remember being like, what? A friendly ghost? <laughs> what are you talking about? Where is it now? Do you see it? <laughs> Like, I was, like, horrified by this idea of a friendly ghost uh, as if you put friendly in front of something supernatural and somehow it's fine, you know? You're like, no one sees it. Where is it now? It's coming for you. Sleep well, my child, you know? And uh, so literally, anytime anything fell over, uh, it was like, oop, our friendly ghost knocked it over. I was like, eh. And so I was so disturbed by it that I went home and talked to my parents. I was like, listen, there's like a friendly ghost in our room. I mean, I guess it's okay because it's friendly. And they're like, what are you talking about? And... Uh, and so I explained it, and before they could really weigh in, my grandparents, uh, we had built a house next to our home where my grandparents lived uh, for a time, and so my grandmother weighed in real quick uh, in some super helpful theological ways. Um, she, uh, she real quick let me know, uh, honey, there's no such thing as ghosts. Um, when you die, you either go to heaven or hell. I was like, okay, so what's in my kindergarten room, right? <laughs> because I'm six, all right, and you're scaring the snot out of me. Like heaven or hell, I'm not really processing all that, but there's something knocking things over in our room, and the teacher is acknowledging that. And so she looks at me, she goes, well, 
if there is a being in your room, it's either a demon or an angel. I was like, what? My mom's like, oh, okay, okay, come here, honey. I was like, I don't know what's going on. And so my mom said something after that. It sounded a lot like this. Wah, 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 you know, and all I heard was like, I'm going, there's a demon chasing me around the kindergarten room. And for some reason it likes the snacks. I don't know. And so I, I went to, to kindergarten the next day and, uh, it was a little hard to sleep that night. And, um, but uh, nap time was way different in kindergarten. I was like, do you see the friendly ghost now? <laughs> Sleep with one eye open. And uh, so I was, uh, I was talking to one of the parent helpers there, and um, the teacher made a comment again. Oops, our friendly ghost visited us. And uh, I was like, is it an angel or a demon? And she's like, what? <laughs> and I don't remember which, who she was or anything. I was just like, the friendly ghost, angel or demon? Like, as if that somehow, like, man, she's like, uh, you know, I, I just think that the teacher's kind of like saying something for like the wind blowing, like it's just a joke. And I was thinking, why wouldn't my parents let me in on this little joke? And I'm thinking, wow, my grandmother might be vicious, you know? So I was like, wait, so there's nothing in the room? She goes, no, honey, it's, it's okay. Like there's nothing here. Like it's just the wind is blowing, it knocks something over, or she forgets something. And sometimes she just says that. I was like, oh. So then I started like paying attention and realizing like, Oh, yeah, anytime she loses something, she says the friendly ghost moved it or whatever. So I'm opportunistic. So all of a sudden, like, there's, uh, there's way more snacks gone than there should be. And she's like, did somebody take an extra snack? I'm like, it must have been our friendly ghost. She's like, what? Boom. But we, we are enamored by the spiritual, by spiritual things, by supernatural things, right? We see that all throughout society, right? As a, as a kid, I remember turning on TV around Christmas time. You watch the movies of the, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of, of Christmas future, you know? You're like, uh, why doesn't it say words? Like, I don't understand. Like, anyway, if you haven't watched the movie, feel free. Um, so we just, we get freaked out um, in some ways, but in other ways, we embrace it in in enamored, leaning in type ways. Um, Hollywood has made billions of dollars on this, right? When I was a kid, it was Ghostbusters, this idea that ghosts are around and we can capture them. And there's always this reality of something supernatural. And so the question I want you to consider as we move to the text this morning is why are we enamored by the supernatural? Why? Why are we enamored by the supernatural? Why is that? I want to submit to you that we as humans are, at times, enamored by the supernatural because we want power to believe that our current reality isn't as good as it gets. We want to have power to be able to control or change our current reality. We want to step back and say, wait a second, if, if we're in a tough spot, this isn't as good as it gets. Why? Because there's something supernatural at play. There's the potential of something supernatural. Like I've already alluded to, it's, it's why entertainment is a multi-billion dollar uh, industry. You see, entertainment provides a couple of roads when we engage this idea of life. The first is a way of attempting to escape your current reality. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, it never works. Like, once you leave the movie theater, you're right back to the same old reality. <laughs> but but we, we like to think that we can in some way escape our current reality, and so we lean into ways to be entertained. The second thing that it provides is a way to dream about intervention in your current reality. Like maybe there's something that can change. Maybe there's a way that an outside force could somehow intervene. 
The thing that's interesting, and I won't spend a lot of time on it, except for I'll say that when I was in uh, Bible college, one of our professors would give extra credit if we would take a current movie and we would uh, make clear, based on the basis of the movie, what the gospel message is in that movie. It was amazing. And so it's kind of wrecked me for all movies I've ever watched because you start to realize, like, wait a second, there's this inherent desire and longing for the truth of the gospel. Every movie, every story told is talking about this one that would come and intervene in the midst of a, a dire situation. And in some way, the, the hero of the story relinquishes, relinquishes, relinquishes his or her rights, lays down their life at times for the greater good, right? And all of a sudden, there's this amazing story of this feel-good moment, and you realize that it's really the longing of humanity to understand and to tell the, the gospel truth. It's interesting because when it comes to the idea of intervening in your current reality and turning to entertainment, it's typically irrational. It's typically, we daydream about this idea of our entire circumstances somehow changing. That in some way, some outside force would somehow change it. As a kid, it's way more, easier to, way more easily to identify. Uh, as a kid, you, I remember going and being like, if I could just fly, then all of my problems would be solved. I remember watching Superman and just being like, oh my gosh, like that's the answer. I could fly. And I remember trying to fly. It was a painful season of my life. <laughs> if you talk to my younger sister, we both swear that there was a, a moment, a single moment where I kicked my feet up and extended my arms fast enough. And just for a split second, I hovered before coming crashing down onto our hardwood floors. I flew for a moment. There's this, this idea that we grab onto a, a form of entertainment, something mystical, something beyond our control, and say, man, if only that, then this. When Superman flew around the world and turned back time, it was like, brilliant. I can go back in the past. <laughs> like, I can change everything. It's irrational, right? And yet sometimes we catch ourselves daydreaming about things, daydreaming about alternate realities, we are enamored by the supernatural because we want power. We want to control and or change our current reality. It sounds strong. In fact, maybe even a little dirty. Like it sounds like we're <laughs> control issues that we want to manipulate situations. But it's at the root of most of our endeavors as humans. It's a human reality. We can deny it if we want, but if we like it or not, the reality is we want to control our reality. The American dream is a perfect example. It's about you having the power and ability to change your current socioeconomic reality. It's the American dream. Listen, you can change it. You don't like your reality? We're in America. You can change that. Just change it. Work hard. If you work hard, you'll get what it is that you deserve. And listen, you'll be rewarded with happiness. That's the amazing blessing of the American dream. It's driven into us in our Western society. There's a better version, and you can fight for it. You can do it. Relationships are the same way. It's all about what it is that you want. And if you no longer find yourself in a relationship that makes you happy, then you have the power to leave and pursue happiness. I mean, because after all, you deserve to be happy, right? Because other people exist for you. <laughs> Whoops, that must be somebody else. Um, but the reality is that it feeds in to our subconscious, and it feeds into our heart this idea that we can get what it is that we want 
when we want it and we can pursue happiness. Nike says, just do it. We hear it over and over and over again in our society. Happiness. Happiness. It's this ever-elusive God that requires everything from you with a promise of something never delivered. Think about that. Happiness is an ever-elusive little g God that requires everything from you with a promise of something never delivered. There are very few things in this life that you'll pursue only to discover that the harder you chase it, the further it gets, right? I just want to be happy. If only I do this, then I'll be happy. Wait, I'm not happy. Oh, I know. If only I do this, then I'll be happy. Oh, wait, still not happy. What if happiness wasn't something to be pursued? What if society has been lying to us? What if it's not about the pursuit of happiness? What if happiness wasn't something to be pursued, but in fact, what if happiness, true happiness, was something that you are pursued by? What if you're fully known and fully loved? What if there was a way for you in the depth of the way that you are functioning, the way you're thinking, the way that you're wired, that you would be completely and entirely known and yet in the same way be completely and entirely loved? Because really, that's what we're in pursuit of. In relationships, in validation of the things that we possess or the stuff that we can gather, this idea of happiness is really about knowing that we belong, that we're fully known and fully loved. Is it possible that we are seeking and serving the evidence of God rather than God himself? Think about that for a second. We, like the Hebrews, are pursuing power to change our current reality and circumstances instead of pursuing the source of power. It's somewhat tragic if you think about it for too long. The author of Hebrews starts this morning's text with a rhetorical question concerning angels because they, the Hebrews, like us, were enamored by the power of the supernatural. And so for the first half of verse 5, it says this. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and then this is in quotes in the text, you are my son, today I have begotten you. To which of the angels did God ever say that? To which of the angels did God ever call son? Angels here in the Greek uh, means messenger. Literally, an angel, by definition, is a messenger. Isn't it interesting that we can be enamored by the messenger and not consider the fact that a messenger's existence is contingent upon someone that has sent them? So we can be enamored by the spirituality of angels and spiritual beings like the Hebrews where they're just worshiping the supernatural and forget that, wait a second, someone sent the sent one. They were worshiping the evidence that there is a God rather than God himself. Worshiping the evidence of God. It's crazy, right? And we'd sit back and be like, that is ridiculous. Those Hebrews, man, they were a mess, a hot mess. 
That is so absurd. Worshiping the created instead of the creator. Huh. That would be like us, I don't know, worshiping money, worshiping our possessions, our car, our house, our relationships. Oh, wait. <laughs> a little too close to home. Like, it's a fallen condition from the beginning of time. This idea that the human heart in, in pursuit of control leans towards and worships what it is that gives them value. And so this idea that we would worship the created over the creator is actually a reality that transcends time. And it's relevant today. The author here is quoting this this uh, portion of the verse that says, you are my son today, I have begotten you, is in quotes, and it's Psalm 2, 7, which is a verse where God is referring to the Messiah, where God is actually making reference to the Messiah. And so what's, what's happening here is the author of Hebrews is starting to connect the dots. You've got to remember the culture that he's writing to originally. He's saying, hey, listen, I know this verse is re- re- uh, reserved for the Messiah. I'm attributing it to Christ. So some lights are starting to go off here. Listen, the, the, the one that God was talking to came in the person and work of Jesus. The second part of verse five says, or again, and then another quotation, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now the author is, is quoting 2 Samuel verse seven, uh, sorry, chapter seven, verse 14, which is actually a prophetic text. So it's a prophetic text, and these uh, Hebrews would have known that it was a prophetic text. It's being stated now, what's happening is the author is basically saying that the meaning of that verse in fulfillment of prophecy is Jesus fulfilling the Davidic promise. In other words, Jesus is from the line of David and the fulfillment of what it is that the Old Testament talks about. The author of Hebrews is starting to connect some dots unapologetically to sacred Old Testament texts and saying, the one I'm talking about, this Jesus, not only is he supreme and above the angels, but he is, based on the text that you believe to be true, the actual son of God, the Messiah, the one spoken about. We have to understand the context here and the impact of these verses being quoted and then being connected to Jesus. Verse six says, and again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and then this is in quotes again, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. This is powerful. It's more powerful than maybe you perceive it to be uh, at face value because, again, in original context, this verse is actually Deuteronomy 32.43, and it's from the law. So it's literally a quotation from the law, and the statement about angels bowing down in worship is actually in reference to Yahweh the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. The name that couldn't even be spoken in their community. Like you couldn't even say the name Yahweh because it was too, too much a reverence. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, that verse in the law reserved for Yahweh is in fact being connected to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. The angels worship Jesus. This was huge. This is huge. The author of Hebrews is trying to illuminate what and who we pursue and showing us how that person or that thing is in fact submitted to Jesus. 
So they're saying, listen, you're enamored, you're blown away by heavenly hosts, by angels. Do you know that the angels that you're enamored by worship Jesus? They're submitted to him. Listen, the thing, the person that you are worshiping, that you're assigning worth to, that you sacrifice for, they either worship God or they will worship him. The word of God says that that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The thing that you are striving towards, the thing that you are assigning worth to is created and it is submitted to the creator. Are you worshiping the evidence of God? Let that mess with you a little bit daily because it doesn't go away. Like you don't wake up tomorrow after hearing this message and be like, I get it. I worship the created. I'm going to totally stop that today. No, our heart is bent towards it. It's the fallen condition of humanity. It's why we have to speak the truth of the gospel to us and realign our hearts and our perspective and say, listen, this is a lesser thing I'm striving for. The evidence that there is a God. Are you pursuing something lesser than the one worthy of all your worship? Because you know what? It will never fulfill you. How could it? How could a created thing fulfill the role of creator in your life? It will never be what it is you search for. I'm going to let some spouses off the hook right now. (laughs) They will never be what it is you're searching for. (laughs) They will never be on this side of heaven. They don't have the capacity. You can try, browbeat, do whatever you want. But the the fact is, they will always fall short. If you are trying to find identity, self-worth, and love through a person, you will never get there. You'll never get there. And the lie that we fall victim to is that certainly my child will give me the love I want. My spouse can't, but I'll tell you what, my kid, they don't know any better. And that's true till about three. (laughs) Right? And you're like, come to daddy. No. What? (laughs) Come on, daddy loves you. No, mama. Ah! <laughs> right? We, we believe that, and why is that? Why do, we, why do we lean for that? Why do we search for that? It's because we want to be known and loved unconditionally. And so we search on this side of heaven for a sense of control, a sense of identity in a lesser thing that we'll never produce. Oh, if I could get enough money, then when I walk into the room, whoo, people will respect me, right? Until they don't. I love these amazing stories. One of the things I was reading about is uh, Tony Hawk tweeting about people that don't recognize him. And it's absolutely hysterical. Tony Hawk is a famous skateboarder and he has like 11 or 12 tweets of all these different interactions that he's had in different airports and stuff where people don't recognize him. And they they say like, oh, you you look kind of like a really old version of that skater guy, you know, or all these different, and it's absolutely hilarious because here's the deal. You can be that famous and as quickly as you're known, you're forgotten. Isn't that crazy? You'll you'll pursue your whole life to accomplish something that doesn't matter. Think of the tremendously profound people that you read about, that you learn about, and then you say their name to someone else, and like, oh, I've never heard of them. You're like, oh my gosh, you've never heard of so-and-so? You're like, yeah, not even a little. 
And then they start telling you about them and you're like, yeah, as you're telling me, I still don't care. <laughs> right? Like it's, it's the rhythm of the nature of life. And we're like, but come on. I mean, I want to be this person. And you're like, okay, be that person. Like, I don't care. Uh, can you pass me the milk? You know, like, <laughs> but we strive for it. It's tragic that we can live our one and only life in pursuit of something that we'll never deliver. We'll never deliver. Verses 7 through 13 go on and quote different verses. There are, in fact, all quotations from the Psalms. In fact, more specifically and importantly, they're all quotations from the Greek Psalter, which was provided, uh, it provided the hymns for the temple. And so it's important to realize that the Hebrews that this letter was written to would have sung these verses in worship to God. So the, the, the remaining verses that are quoted are verses that they have sung, that they would be familiar with, that they had spent their whole life singing. The author is establishing that they've been singing about Jesus their whole lives and didn't know it. You ever look for something that's right in front of you? Man, this week I had to leave. I was in a hurry. I had to get to an appointment. and I was going through the house real quick. As I'm grabbing all the things that I need, I had to go to the uh, post office, and so I've got some letters, and I'm headed down the stairs, and all of a sudden I go, oh my gosh, I don't have my keys. So I go back. We have this little place that I keep the keys, and I go over. It's not there. And so immediately I want to blame Meredith. <laughs> like, Where did she put my keys? <laughs> And so, you know, I started looking through all the places that she would put my keys. And where are they? I can't believe this. Like, I always put my keys right there. And so I'm looking around, and I'm so frustrated. And literally out loud, I'm like, what is my deal? I always put my keys right there. And I go right there, and I hear, ting. They're in my hand. <laughs> They're literally looped around my pinky. And I'm holding the letters in my hand. And I didn't notice it until I shook it. And I heard the noise. I was like, I am an idiot. <laughs> I am an idiot. Have you ever searched for something that's right in front of you. And I want to submit to you this morning, you are searching for a God that is right in front of you. You are searching for, for the, the one agent of power and strength in this entire universe. And your life is so darkened by the concerns and the worries of this world that you haven't allowed the illumination of the reality of who God is and the fact that he's right before you to change everything about your life. Listen, the power and control that they were searching for was and is found in Jesus and him alone. Get this. The power and control that you are searching for, that I am searching for, is found in Jesus and him alone. What if we stopped pursuing happiness and instead pursued Jesus? What if we stopped pursuing happiness, the evidence of God, and instead pursued God himself? What if we put as much energy into the pursuit of Jesus as we put into the pursuit of other lesser things? We pursue a lot. We pursue a lot. We tweet about it. We social media about it. We tell people about it. Like we are in pursuit of a lot of things in this world. What if we instead pursued the source 
if we realized that we're seen and that we're heard and loved by the creator of the universe. Imagine the contentment, the joy, the true happiness that would fill our lives. And I say imagine if because if we really believed it, we'd live like it. We wouldn't have to strive. If we really truly knew that we were seen and heard, if we were really, really seen and heard by the Lord and still loved and we knew it at the core of who we were, then we wouldn't search for it in the eyes of others. We wouldn't need it from other people. We wouldn't need it from our spouse. We wouldn't need it from our kids. We wouldn't need it from our boss. We wouldn't need it from the dollars that we pursue or any other thing. We wouldn't need it because we'd have it. The happiness and the joy that would fill our lives. And as a result, it would flow out of our lives, right? You'll often hear this phrase that that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. I want to say loved people love people, right? It's the same thing. It's not, it's not rocket science. When we're fully loved, we have the capacity to love others. When we are aware of the grace and the forgiveness that's been extended to us, then we're able to award grace and forgiveness to others. If you're incapable of forgiving others, it's because you don't understand the forgiveness that God has extended to you. Or you're believing a lie that you're more righteous than you actually are. I'm good. They should be good too. No, you are a hot mess just like them. We all are. We're all sinners saved by grace. You see the shift? Instead of pursuit of happiness, we pursue Christ and as a result, we walk in happiness and joy. Jesus was was silenced and rejected so that you could be seen and heard. There was a debt that you simply could not pay with the wickedness of your own life, the fallen condition of your own heart and mind. You know it, and it's not just you, it's me too. We know the brokenness of our own life. You can dress up and act otherwise if you want, but in the deep recesses of your mind, you understand the depravity of your own heart. And if you can come to grips with the depravity of your own heart and realize that even in the midst of that brokenness, Jesus went to a cross and died the death that you and I deserve, He was silenced and rejected so that we could be known and heard, so that we could be loved. When we rest in the finished work of Jesus, we're empowered by his spirit. Listen to that. The power we search for is gifted to us as we seek the Lord that the, when we rest in the finished work of Jesus, we're empowered by his spirit, not for selfish ambition, but to be agents of change, both in word and deed. In what it is that we say and how it is that we act for his glory and our joy, our happiness. Listen, the, the, the goal of this life is to not pursue happiness, but instead to pursue Jesus and allow the pursuit of Jesus to bring us to a place of happiness and joy. And that that happiness and joy would empower our hearts and overflow as an evidence of the spirit, right? 
One of, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Why would we pursue the evidence of God? It doesn't make sense. If we would just pursue Jesus himself and rest in his work, the outflow of that is the fruit of the Spirit. We would live changed to have impact in, in every sphere that God sends us to. In the workplace, at church, in our family, wherever it would be. We'd be agents of change for his glory and our joy. One of the things that we say weekly is that the text requires something of us. We can sit and talk about what Hebrews meant to the people that read this original letter. And the impact that it would have in their lives, but... The reality is it's, it's applicable today in our lives. The one we're searching for has pursued us. Jesus is, is here. He's followed you to this place. The question is, will, will you allow the love that he has for you and the truth of that love to settle within your heart and transform every interaction you have? You see, because we're the gatekeepers of the truth that we permit in. Because we can sit here this morning and say, oh, God says I'm truly loved, truly heard, fully known. He doesn't really know me though. I'm unlovable. Because of the lies that others have spoken to you. Because of the lies that you've whispered to yourself. And so you have the ability to say, okay, I'm going to risk believing that God in fact knows me. And that he loves me in spite of who I am. Will you rest in that? Because if you rest in that awareness, it will change every interaction you have. And so what does it require of us today? I want to ask you a question that you consider as you leave this place, as you apply it to your life. Here's the question. What will I do differently because of the person and work of Jesus Christ? What will I do differently? Now listen, last week talked about rest, resting in the finished work. And, and part of the reason why the, the preaching uh, and teaching team went into this progression is because we think if, if we would have started with the idea of how it is that, that Jesus affects the way we live our lives, that we would just bend right into works righteousness. We'd roll up our sleeves and be like, I'll do better, I'll do better. So instead we said, listen, let's contemplate what it looks like to rest in the reality of who Jesus is. And now let's talk about what it is that needs to be done differently. Not because of our efforts, but because of our willingness to rest in what Christ has done. In other words, Maybe it means reprioritizing your life. Not trying harder, reprioritizing. What is it that really matters? What is it that I have to do differently? What is it that we have to talk about differently? What is it that we're instilling in our kids? Because I'll tell you what, if you're instilling in your kids the American dream over the truth of the gospel, don't be surprised when they become materialistic little brats. Honest to goodness. It's, it's just the reality of it, right? We end up with what it is that, that we're modeling and what it is that we're teaching and sowing into the lives of our kids and, and into our friends. So if you don't have children in this room, it's still relevant. It's the reality of what it is that we're sowing into them. What are the priorities of your life? What will you do differently because of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Maybe this morning, what you'll do differently 
And your application is that you'll surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe what needs to change is that you have to get off of the throne of your own life and say, you know what? I want to ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. Will you you reprioritize my life, Lord? Will you mess me up a little bit? The things that I've been trained and thought that matter in this world ultimately lead to nothing. God, would you do a work in me? So this morning, if, you, if you've never crossed that line of faith and you want to come into relationship with Christ, it's as simple as, as praying a prayer in the quietness of your own seat this morning. I'm not going to make you come forward or embarrass you or anything like that. It's a decision between you and the Lord until you go public with that through baptism. And so right now, in the quietness of your seat, if you want to surrender your life, it's just as simple as saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. But I know you died for me. You paid the penalty that I deserve. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It's that easy. It's that easy this morning. For others of you in this place, maybe you've crossed that line of faith and the application looks different for you. There's something else that's required of you from the text and maybe it's a reprioritizing. And I'll tell you right now, it's counterintuitive. It goes completely against everything that we've been trained. It's, It's like, wait a second. Are we really flipping this power pyramid upside down? It's almost like like God coming as a servant. (laughs) It sounds almost like the gospel. That we would, instead of elevating the things that this world elevates, lower them to their proper place and say, God, what would you have me do with my finances? What do you say about the way we spend our money? God, what what is it that you would do with my talents, with my gifts, with the things that you have given me as the creator that know me. God, what, would I, what should I be about? Lord, what should we do with our time? Time. It's so limited. So small. Eternity is so long. And our time on this earth is so small. How will you leverage your time? Oh my gosh, the things we waste our time on things we waste our time on, all the while saying, we don't have enough time. I got no time. Go watch TV for four hours. <laughs> I got no time. Hang out and play some video games. I got no time. List goes on. Reprioritizing your life. I want you to bow your heads if you would. And close your eyes if, if you can remain engaged with your eyes closed. If you're going to kind of check out mentally, then leave your eyes open. I want you to consider the application this morning. We're going to go into a time of response. We're going to sing praise and worship to the Lord. As we do, I want you to think about what it is that you'll do differently. Does it mean... Instead of checking social media first thing in the morning, maybe you check you version, read a verse. Instead of going over and, and reading the newspaper first thing, that maybe you pray, spend some time with the Lord over a cup of coffee. I know that there's a wide variety of people in the room, ranging from committed Christ follower to, to maybe even skeptic. I don't know what your next step is, but I know that there's a next step. I know that the text requires something from every single person in the room. 
The question is whether or not we'll engage it. Maybe for you, reprioritizing your time, talent, or treasure, it looks like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into this body of believers in a stronger way. We have a clarity workshop coming up next week. Maybe that's your next step. So say, I want to learn how to, to leverage the way I'm wired for God's glory as part of this community. Maybe it means serving. Maybe it means looking at the way that you deal with your treasure and saying, listen, I'm, I'm going I'm to tithe. And it's not about us gathering money here, but we have the ability to have profound impact in this community, surrounding communities, and the world because of people's faithfulness to give for the furtherance of the kingdom. So I'm not trying to convince anybody to surrender their money. I'm, I'm simply saying, for those of you that put your hand in the circle and say, God's got the first say on my treasure. He's got the first say on my time and my talent. We take that seriously here. And if you feel we don't, then go somewhere where you feel that it does. Because time is so short. And would you allow the truth of the gospel to reorient and reprioritize the things you chase after? It's amazing how we get what we want when we pursue the creator rather than the created. We pursue Jesus, we get joy. We pursue Jesus with our time and he fills our time with, with joy. I can't believe we get to do this. We leverage our, our treasure, our, our, our finances towards him and God provides beyond our wildest imagination. It's incredible. People say, oh, you can't outgive God. It's so true. We lay down our talents and God stirs them in a way that we can't even comprehend. God, I'm the least of these. How, how have you positioned me in this place? I'm saying this this morning because as we, as we consider response, realize that this is your one and only life and that God has something great in store for you. He has a plan and a purpose for you. You're not the summation of the lies that people have spoken into your life. You're the summation of the truth of the gospel. You are known, you are heard, you are loved. If you'll just walk in that.